Okay, if you would take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to read starting at verse 5. And I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. Didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he had put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that was not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying... I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your love and your mercies to us. Thank you for your word and the encouragement and the comfort, the promises we find therein. We thank you, Father, that we can have your word preserved for us and in our own language. and We can study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd help me to rightly divide thy truth. And that we be able to make application to our lives for our good and for thy glory. We do pray, Father, that you'd speak to hearts and have your will and way. And may you be glorified, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the plan of God has been prepared since the foundation of the world. And that plan is for all be subject, all things, all men, all people, and all things to be subject to the Son. Now sometimes that gets a little confusing. Because sometimes I'm, I fear we equate the plan of God with the will of God. But they are not the same. Let me try and illustrate. You know, sometimes we say, well, it's just the will of God, and, and you know, it's the plan of God, so we just you know, have to kind of go along with things. Well, let me ask you a few questions. Is it God's will that all men be saved? 
Yeah, we know that from the Bible. Second Peter 3, 9, God's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. Okay? Is it his plan? You know, his plan really is to offer salvation to all mankind. That's his plan. But I don't know if we can say it's his plan that all men be saved. You know, when we plan something, we plan how we're going to do things. We have a plan. This is what we're going to do tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. You know, that's, that's our plan. But can we say that God planned that everyone be saved? No. It was his plan to offer salvation to all mankind. That we do know and we can be certain of. But that does not mean that all will be saved. His plan is, and this will be come to pass, his plan is all will be subjected to the Son. Whether you get saved or whether you don't get saved, you're going to become subject to the Son at some point in the future. The Bible bears that out. That is his plan. Again, in... I'll look at a couple of scriptures here, now that I got you all confused. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 through 10 says, To you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So his plan is to be admired by all and glorified by those that believe. Even Pharaoh, who refused to submit to God, brought glory to God. God was glorified. By the rebellion of Pharaoh. Was it God's plan or God's will for Pharaoh to go to hell? The answer is no. The answer is no. You know, and sometimes I've heard Christians say some of this effect. Well, it's just God's plan. Therefore, we've got to roll over and submit to every dictator man. No, we don't. You know, this rebellion we see in the world today is not God's plan. It's not God's will that any should perish. It is the workings of man, and God knows the workings of man. God knows what are going to be the workings of man, and it's eventually going to work out to fulfill God's plan that all are going to be subject to the Son. But if you say that those things are the will of God or the plan of God, you're a Calvinist, basically. That's Calvinistic. God's, you know, that is the same as saying that God's the author of pain, misery, and death, which we see everywhere in our world today, and confusion. And we know the Bible very clearly says God's not the author of confusion. And is the world confused? <laughs> That's an understatement. 
See, God's plan is He made man for fellowship, and man surrendered to Lucifer, the devil, and now you have two opposing powers or two imposing influences in the world, but that doesn't mean God planned it that way or that was His will. Now, did He know it would be? Yes, He did. And after all, He is God. You know, did He plan the flood? Was it His will that all those people perished in the flood? No. If it was God's plan for all those people to perish in the flood, then why did Noah waste 120 years preaching to them? So, His plan that will be done, and we see here in Hebrews 2, is that for all things to be subject to the Son. So, so that's really the title of the message. God's plan is subjection to the Son. And that, and that means whether you're saved or lost. You know, and His will, in other words, His desire is that all men be saved. That's God's desire. That's God's will. But all men will not be saved. We already know from history, from the Bible, that there are many who have died not saved. But all will be, whether they're saved or whether you're lost, you leave this world lost in sin, you will be made subject to the Son in His time. So I want you to consider this morning three things, and I'm going to try and get finished in time. Um, so we don't have burnt uh, offerings downstairs. First of all, God's, again, God's plan is for subjected all things to the Son. As we think about that, you know, he says that all things will be made subject. That's everything, you know, and what we see happening in our world is God giving opportunity for man to be a part of his plan of subjecting to the Son, or his will of subjecting to the Son, and, 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 and not to refuse or to reject him. If, 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 if God shut it down now, there'd be people who wouldn't have opportunity. So, so that is God's plan to offer eternal life unto all. But they will, whether or not, they will be subject. And, and notice here are several things. He says, first of all, even angels are going to be subject to him. Verse 5 says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. And so the angels, of course, they are powerful beings, but they are created beings. Uh, they are inferior to the Creator, the Lord. And your angels surround a throne. They're messengers of God. They have power to destroy men, cities, armies. Uh, you know, two angels that were sent to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed it. You know, and it was an angel of the Lord that smote 185,000 Syrians in one night. It was an angel that led Peter out of Herod's prison, and then an angel that smote Herod. That he died. You know, it's angels that announced our Savior's birth and sang praises to him. And referring to men, in 2 Peter 2.11, the Bible says, whereas angels are greater in power and might. In other words, they're greater in power and might than men are, but they bring not a railing accusation against them before the Lord. You know, so, so angels are powerful beings, but these angels are going to be subject and are subject unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He is greater than they. He is superior than they. You know, in, in Revelation chapter 5, we see a a scene in heaven that is yet future. 
in, in Revelation 5, in verses 11 and 12, where it says, And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. And then it says, And thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. See, these, the angels are subject, are in subjection to the Son. He is greater, He is better, that's the key word of Hebrews, He is greater than the angels. And they are subject to Him. But not only will the angels, or are the angels subject to Him, all mankind, or all men, or all mankind, will be subject to Him. Notice verse 6, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man? That thou art mindful of him. Or the son of man, that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, it says here, he asks a question, the writer does, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Mindful. Do you ever think about it? The Bible is telling us here that he is mindful of man. What is man? What is there about man? What's, what's significant about man that he would be on the mind of God? You know, this is, this is what they call present active, which means that God is always thinking about us. Always. And it, is, it speaks of continual action. So from the beginning, God has been and always will be seeking man. When Adam and Eve hid in the garden, and he came seeking them and said, Adam, where art thou? Where art thou? In John 4, in verse 23, speaking to the, to, to the Samaritan woman, Jesus said, The Father seeketh such to worship Him. In other words, He's looking for, He's seeking after such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, He says, For I know thy thoughts. You know, he, he said, It's 70 years captivity for you in, the, in, in Babylon, but here's one thing you need to remember. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. You know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, this, this being mindful of man is not an afterthought with God. It's, the, it's, it's a... It's a we have been on the mind of God from eternity past, and it will continue into eternity future. Of course, we're going to go to dwell with Him for all eternity. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 20, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. See, Jesus Christ 
was foreordained to come and give himself as a sacrifice for our sin. He was on the mind of God before the foundation of the world to be a sacrifice for our sin. Revelation 13.8 tells us he was a lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Again, this means that the Lord God who created us has always had us on his mind. You know, sort of like a loving parent. Some of us who are old enough to be grandparents now understand that you never quit thinking about your kids. I mean, they may leave the home. They may get married and leave their home. Start their own home. But they're still on your mind. I mean, the relationship may kind of change, but they're still on your mind. And this is, this is the mind of God. His mind is always on us. God cares for all mankind. He's not willing that any should perish. And yet some people have the audacity to say, what God ever do for me? You just don't know my God. Not only is we on his mind, but he visited us. Notice again verse 6. One in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? You know, to visit someone means you go where they are. You know, we all went to visit the Smiths yesterday. That means we went to the Smiths' house, where they live. You imagine... Right now, leaving your peaceful place where you live, to go visit somebody in war-torn, sin-laden Afghanistan. You're like, I don't think so. You know, a place that's heavy-handed dictator rule. You know, and even that's a poor illustration. Because God the Son, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, left the glories of heaven, the sinless heaven, to come where there is war, famine, murder, drunkenness, immorality of all kinds, extortion by religious leaders of the day, and on and on and on we could go. I mean, it was a wicked, this is a wicked world. To visit us. You now, he came. So, again, it's a question. What is man? So, the idea is, why would God come visit man? Why would anybody want to go visit Afghanistan right now? We would say they are foolish. But he came to visit. John 1.14 says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
And, and what is man? Why is God mindful of me? Why would God visit? You know, Isaiah 2.22 says, See she from man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Psalm 39, 4 and 5, Lord, make me to know mine end and measure the measure of my days, what it is that I know how, may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an hand breath. Mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Every man at his best state is vanity. And yet God left heaven to come visit vanity. Vanity. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.24, all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof fadeth. John 1.11 says he came unto his own and his own received him not. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It wasn't that he loved the trees or the animals. No, he loved the inhabitants of the world. That's what the, world there, the word world there means. He loved the inhabitants of the world. And so he, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, there's an interesting verse in Proverbs 8.31 speaking about the Son of God, and it says this about him, My delights were with the sons of men. And many times I ask myself, why? Why? Why would God delight to be with me? When I read the newspaper, why would God delight to spend time with the sons of men? That word delights means my enjoyment. That's my enjoyment. You know, I did enjoy spending time with you all yesterday. But there's a lot of the world that I really don't enjoy spending time with. The majority of the world. So the Lord, the Creator, the first begotten Son, lowered Himself. And here's the interesting thing. He lowered Himself, think about this. Verse 7 says, Thou madest Him a little lower than the angels. The angels, remember, are created beings. Beings that He created, yet He lowered Himself lower than them to visit us. Because He was mindful of us. And you know, again, this, is, this is, speaks of a continuous action. Throughout the Bible, we see evidence that God is mindful of His creatures. And, and even the last book of the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen, says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, what? Come. Let he that heareth come. Whosoever will, come. Take the water of life freely. God's still seeking man. To subject himself unto him. Now this 
Secondly, this God's plan for subjection is certified by the suffering of the Son. And notice verses 9 and 10. Now, notice several things here. First of all, the Son of God was made lower that he might redeem man from sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So he was made a little lower. He was made lower for a little time uh, than the creatures he created. And, and, and so in doing so, he, you know, you know, this is kind of mind-boggling to me, but in doing so, he also subjected himself unto men. Now, I've never done this. I don't really think it'd be wise. But that'd be sort of like saying to your seven-year-old, okay, today, you are the dad, and I am the son. So when I do what you think is wrong, you need to chastise me. You say, that's crazy. But didn't the Creator subject Himself to His creation who chastised Him for our sin? Isaiah 53 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You see, sin brings the judgment of God, and he became sin for us. He was judged of God for us. And the instrument that God used to judge him was man. Wicked men. Pastor, that seems backwards. Yeah. It is upside down that the Son of God would take the punishment for my sins. You see, he lowered himself for the suffering of death. Notice again verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. You know, in his pre-incarnate state, before he was born as a baby in a manger, in that pre-incarnate state, he could not die. God can't die. You know, angels are spirits' beings, and they don't die. They do not die. Even those that followed Satan, they will not die. They'll spend eternity in hell. They lake a fire with him. But the penalty for man's sin required a perfect, sinless sacrifice, and that was something that man could not do. One commentator said this, quote, Behold here the wonder of wonders. Christ undertakes a task above the power of all the angels, and to effect it he has to be made lower than the angels. If ever power was made perfect weakness, it was in this. 
Us Philippians, Philippians tell us, he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being in that likeness of men, somebody help me there, I need help. He, gave his, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Power became weakness for us. He tasted death for every man. That word taste means to experience or to participate. See, by experiencing death on our behalf for the salvation of our souls and the salvation of every man, it provides salvation offered to every man. You know, he will have all men to be saved. But the taste means he actually partook of death, but it also suggests that he was not swallowed up of death. See, the Bible says he saw no corruption. He wasn't swallowed up by death. He wasn't completely overtaken by death. Because, you know, he, death only held him three days, and after three days he resurrected from the dead. Conquering death. But he did taste it. See, he was three days under the power or control of death. But on that third day, he rose victorious. And now he is able to save to the uttermost. That word uttermost there in Hebrews 7.25 means completely or perfectly. He's able to save completely or perfectly all those that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth. You see, he tasted death by lowering himself below the angels. He tasted death for every man. You see, his, his lowering of himself certified him by his suffering. We might say he was qualified. If you notice in verses 10 through 18... And notice, there's two things that are required of this sacrifice for him that qualify him to be the sacrifice for sin. One is, he's God. The other is, he's man. And this is brought out here in the rest of the chapter very clearly. If you notice in verse, well, let's notice first of all, he's qualified as the Son of God. Verse 10 says, for it became him. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things. And I'm going to stop right there. For it became him. That, that phrase means it's fitting or it's appropriate to save man. This should include suffering. Because suffering is man's lot. We're, suffering is the lot of man. We've, we've been suffering ever since, ever since sin came into the world. By man, sin come in, and death by sin. Suffering has been man's lot ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And so it's appropriate for the Son of God to become one of us and suffer with us. But notice it says, for whom all things and by whom are all things. In other words, all things are for him and all things were made by him. You know, Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created by him and for him. 
Proverbs 16.4 says, says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the evil day, day of evil. And Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So, so, it's, 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 so all things are, are of Him and for Him. Uh, or for him and, and of him. Uh, he, is, he is the agent of creation, the final cause, and for whose glory all things were created. See, this, this clearly declares him to be God manifest in the flesh. And so he is qualified as our Savior, as the Son of God, for he is God. But he's also the Son of Man. Notice verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. Again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, Deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So notice several things here. He calls them brethren. He calls us brethren. Verses 11 and 12, uh, you know, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? We know that he sang with his disciples in Matthew 26. Before they went out into them out of the olives. That was his church. He sang with his church. He took part of the same part of us. He took our flesh. Verse 14. For as much as our children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He became to us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. He took the seed of Abraham, verse 16. The Bible says, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Uh, and John 1.14 says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You remember in Genesis 22, in Abra- in verse 8, you know, Isaac had asked Abraham, Father, where's the sacrifice? Do you remember what Abraham said? God will provide, what's the next word? Himself a lamb. That was a prophetic statement. And years later, John the Baptist would declare, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he was pointing to a man. A man. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Pilate said, behold the man. What I'm saying to you is, he was a man. He is a man. He still is a man. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5. 
He, you know, one meter between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, he will be a man for the rest of eternity. But he is also God. First Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. You know, why is there really controversy about the fact that he's the God man? There shouldn't be controversy. Because it's been clearly demonstrated that he is God and man in one person. You know, in John 5, John spoke of it. He says, you know, Jesus said, you bear witness of me. But, uh, you know, I have more witnesses than me. And he talked about John the Baptist bore witness of me. John said, behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He said that the, the works that I do bear witness of me. Uh... The Father bore witness of me. Three times there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, and what does the Bible say by the mouth of two or three witnesses to every word be established? And then he said, The Scriptures also bear witness of me. You know, Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And of course, the end of that verse says they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah 53, it talks about him being as a lamb led to the slaughter. It talks about him making the grave with his wicked, with the wicked. He was crucified between two thieves. Uh, and with the rich in his death, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Micah 5.2 says, Out of Bethlehem there shall come forth he that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting. See, the Scriptures bear witness that this is God in the flesh. There shouldn't be any controversy. There is plenty of witness or testimony. And as a man, his suffering made him qualified to be the captain of our salvation. You know, a captain is a, a leader. It's like a pioneer that opens up the way. And he opened the way for us. He gave us access to God. He opened the way for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And, and even the word perfect here in verse Verse 10, where it says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain, there's that word captain, means pioneer or, or leader, of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect means to qualify. You know, he also is the one that can qualify us. To be sons of God. Therefore, he is able to bring many sons unto glory. He is able to sanctify us. He is able to, he is the one who is able to make us holy, to bring us into relationship with God through his death and resurrection. You notice in verse 17 it says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of, a people, of the people. You see, a, what was the high priest's purpose was to be a mediator between God and man. And he is that high priest who is a mediator between God and man. And he is reconciled. He, he, he's, he's able to make reconciliation. Your reconciliation really means to bring together. To reconcile means to bring together. You see, he is able to succor. Succor. There's an old word there in verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. It means to provide the help or the aid we need. See, we, are, we have no power to overcome death. We're like somebody that's out in the middle of the ocean on a sinking ship with no hope. And we have to have outside help. But he is able to succor them or tempted. See, it's not God's will that any should perish. It's not God's will that you live a life of sin. It's God's will that you subject yourself to him willfully. Of your own volition. You know, verse 8 again says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things under him. Put under him. You see, this act of all things actually being under him, is still yet future. But in the mind of God, it is accomplished. It is accomplished. Everything to fill that has been done. The death of Christ. The resurrection of the dead. Qualifying him... To be the captain of our salvation, the one who will have dominion, who will rule. And all men in his time, and he shall show in his time who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Timothy tells us. And all men in that day will be subject to him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Philippians 2 tells us. The question is, will you subject yourself to him of your own choosing? 
Will you receive the eternal life that He has offered, that He has, that he has paid for, that He has provided? Or will you be forced to bow and then cast into hell? It's my opinion that the sad reality is that men know there is a righteous God, even if they deny it. I had a missionary say to me years ago, he said, my dad always said, there's no such thing as an atheist. At least he wasn't born that way. He may have convinced himself there's no God. But really the reality is deep down in his heart, he knows there is. And there's an interesting statement in Revelation. And, and you can deny God all you want to and deny the Word of God. But there's an interesting statement in Revelation chapter 6. And this is the reason why I say this is my opinion. Revelation 6. This is future 2. It will happen during the tribulation period. Revelation 6.15 says this. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man. Now, when I read that, it looks to me like, okay, he's talking about kings, great men, rich men, chief captains, mighty men, bondmen. Those are servants. And then free men. Is there anything, anyone else that would be excluded from that list of men? I don't think so. So you're talking about educated people, uneducated people, rich people, poor people? Then it goes on and says this. They hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. See, men are now denying and blaspheming God. But when the judgment of God starts to pour out on the earth, you know what they're going to know? They're going to know where it's coming from. All of a sudden, all of a sudden they believe there is a God. They deny him now because they don't want to submit to him. That's my opinion. Are you, have you subjected yourself to him? That's the question this morning. You know, all things, all men, women, all things are going to be made subject to him. But it's God's will that you subject yourself to him now. You Have you come to him in your need? Have you accepted his offer of reconciliation? It is not his will that you perish. But you come to repentance. Will you subject yourself to him?